All right, good morning, Crossroads. Good morning, excited to be together. Just a couple quick announcements, and then we're going to do something a little different this morning. Everybody loves, loves when we switch it up a little bit. So, a couple quick things that are going on. Again, always look in your bulletin uh, for what's going on. We've got opportunities to get trained in ministry at an event called Equip. If you'd like to attend that, you can see me or sign up, and we'll make sure that uh, the fee that they use for that will cover to help you get trained in various areas of ministry. We've got our men's ministry kickoff breakfast coming up on the 19th, which sounds really far away, but it's really not. So I would encourage you to get signed up at the bulletin board for that. And we are always in need of Kids Crossing volunteers, and there's other places uh, that you can serve, again, in the bulletin. And so we'd encourage you to look there. But again, we're going to do something a little bit different this morning. We're going to be switching the order of our service up, and this will become more clear why we're doing that in a little bit. One, because sometimes we just like doing something a little different, right? But more importantly, because as we look at James chapter 5 today, we'll come to see that James is calling the churches he was writing to, to prayer. And so what we're going to do this morning is put the, serv- put the sermon on the front end of the service. And we're not doing that so you can leave early. <laughs> we're doing that so we can devote the rest of our service time after the sermon to prayer, to pray for our church, to pray for others, to make room so that we can obey God's word. James has been telling us over and over and over again, don't just be a hearer of the word be a doer. And so I sort of felt as I was looking at this, go, well, we need to do this. We need to do what James tells us to do, to pray together as God's people. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to hear a sermon on prayer, and then we're going to actually pray. There's going to be a time after the service for an extended time of prayer and praise as a church. And uh, that'll be when Jeremy leads us in worship, and we'll have a time to pray together, to praise the Lord. And so I'm looking forward to that. So, again, we're going to do the sermon on the front end. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll flip over to James chapter 5. So let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray that as we switch things around this morning, we do so in a way that will allow us to respond to your word rightly. You invite us to seek your face and to pray. And so help us to pray in a way that would honor you, in a way that would serve our church, in a way that would make a tangible difference that we can see in our life and in the life of our church. So help us as we look at your word to hear clearly from you. And we ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, look with me at James chapter 5. James chapter 5, and we'll read from verse 13 to 18 together. 13 to 18 together. The Word of God says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. 
And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. This is the word of God. They say that a watched pot never boils. And that's certainly been my experience. But I'll tell you, I discovered another way you keep a pot from boiling this week. It was boiling some water, at least I thought, on the stove, only to turn around and realize I'd forgotten to turn the stove on. So I'd been sitting there waiting for it, going, why isn't it doing anything? And what I'd forgotten to do was ignite the stove to turn the power on. And friends, the church is much the same way. It can be, if we're passive about it, we don't think about it, just sort of a standing pot of water, not making much of an impact. Or, when plugged into the power of God, it can be a roaring pot of boiling water that can make a huge impact. Think of all the things a boiling pot of water can do. It can make a meal It can help to clean out a drain, but we got to be plugged into God's power. And that means the church can never be passive. And one of the ways the church plugs into the power of God is through prayer. Through prayer, the church can go from a boring standing water, pot of water, to a powerful, roaring, boiling pot of impact in the world. And prayer is what James calls us to do in this next to last section of his letter. And there's a lot here, very fascinating. You can go and get any different number of commentaries, and they're going to offer various thoughts on what some of the things in this passage means. And there's plenty of rabbit trails we could go down, but the central message is all about prayer. In a real sense, he's ending where he began. Remember, he started the letter saying, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Let him pray. Let him pursue God. And now he's saying to this church and to these churches that he's writing to that we need to pray for God's help in the midst of our lack. He longed for these people, these churches, in the midst of their dysfunctions, to plug themselves into the power of God through prayer. And friends, God desires the same for us. The solution to any of our issues as a church is to seek God's face through prayer. Let's stop and consider for a moment just some of the issues that James has already dealt with among these churches because they're issues we often deal with as well. Chapter 1, we read that the congregation was suffering Anybody here have suffering, right? We're all experiencing things. These particular Christians, the poor, were being oppressed by the rich. And the rich were leaving back and shortchanging the workers, keeping back their wages, leaving them concerned to even be able to afford food. And within these believers, there were issues with cliques and favoritism. Little groups kind of setting themselves up against other groups. 
And in chapters 3 and 4, we read about how they were using their mouths and their money as weapons to tear down rather than tools to build up. They were a church who had faith without works, a dead church. And the answer, according to James, for a sick and a dead congregation is to pray. And if I could sum up the theme of this part of the letter, it's this, when God's people pray. Because when we do, everything changes. And he challenges us to prayer in three ways in this passage. First, he tells us that the church must be a praying people. The church must be a praying people. Look with me at verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. James' point is this. Communion with God is the right answer regardless of your circumstances. Communion with God is always the right answer regardless of your circumstances. Paul puts it this way. We're to pray at all times in the Spirit with all prayers and supplications. If you are suffering and afflicted, he says the answer is to call out to God. If everything's good, he says the answer is to celebrate the gifts of God. I know this is a sermon on prayer. We should take note of what James is telling us about singing here. We often don't think much about singing in the church because we come in, we do it. We just sort of don't give it a lot of thought sometimes. But friends, God has given us the gift of singing as a way of communing with him. God himself sang when the creation came into being. God gave us a songbook or a playlist called the Psalms for the road trip of life. God thinks how we sing and what we sing is a big deal. And he says we're called to praise in the good and in the bad. We often hear sermons on praising in the pain, right? But when was the last time we thought about praising in prosperity? To praise God because all the bills got paid this month. To sing because the kids are growing and maturing. To praise God that we may not have everything we want, but we have everything we need. And to celebrate that there's not really anything particularly wrong today. So we can celebrate and give him thanks. Friends, God doesn't care how your voice sounds, but he has commanded us to sing to him and to give him praise. James says, if anyone is suffering, let him pray. If anyone is cheerful, let him sing praise. Communion with God is for every season and all times. But it's also for all of God's people. You know, we can think of certain individuals that we would probably call prayer warriors, right? People who just have a particular gift and ability to pray, and that's great. Those folks are a gift to the church, but prayer should never be siloed to one ministry of the church. Prayer needs to be something all of God's people are doing together, individually, at dinner tables, in small groups, done as a faith family. And this is actually where James turns. Look at verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over them, anointing him with oil in the name 
of the Lord. Here he focuses on a particular kind of suffering. He says sickness, literally weakness. And he says what we must do if we're weak is to call for the elders of the church to pray. Notice there's a couple things here that we should note by implication. First, notice he implies that every Christian should have elders they can call on. And elders were actually the primary leadership model in the early church. They didn't have a deacon board deciding what all was going to happen. They didn't have these sort of crazy business meetings where everybody was fighting over the color of the carpets, right? They had qualified, a plurality of qualified righteous men who were called to lead the church and to pray when someone was sick or suffering, or in need of prayer, and they said, call on them, and they would come. And notice the extreme suffering this person must be under. The language it says is them praying over them, not with them. It's as if this person is likely bedridden and unable to come to the elders. There's some that use this text to support the Roman Catholic practice called extreme unction, or you might have heard of it as last rites, right? They're coming to prepare them to die, but the text seems to presume the elders would come and pray and they will get better, not that they would die, right? But the point is this person is in desperate need, so they call the leadership of the church to pray for them, and likely the, the leadership of the church is calling the whole body to pray together. So it's something to ask ourselves, do we have elders in our life, and we do in this church, but do you have people in your life you can call on to pray in your moment of deepest need? Do you have a church family that you can call on to pray when life gets hard? Because James is saying that's just part of the Christian life. You cannot do it alone. And you will never be able to do it alone. Jesus' design for your life centers around a local church, a community of believers doing life together. And James says, call on the elders of the church and call the whole body to pray. Let him call on the elders of the church, he says, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, some people either get real excited when I start talking about oil or get really sort of, we're, you know, kind of creeped out. What is going on with this? Of course, he's talking about olive oil, not WD-40, right? And Mark chapter 6, verse 13 actually records the apostles healed in a very similar fashion. At least that one time they prayed and covered with oil. And it's a bit unclear. Is the oil symbolic for the power of God? Was it municipal? Was it a form of medicine in the ancient world. The, in, the, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, the Good Samaritan poured oil on the man to help heal his wounds. But regardless of what it is, I think it's unlikely there's something supernatural in the olive oil, right? It's not about the actual stuff itself. Of course, in those days, they didn't cook with that nearly to the point that we do today, right? But that the power was in the prayer. That's the point, And I think this is ultimately something that we should consider. God would never discourage us from medicine. Remember, one of his disciples was a doctor. But he says, ultimately, all healing, God gets the credit for. Whether it's the Tylenol and the doctor's visit and the chemo, or whether it's just the miraculous power of God through prayer. 
And he says, when God's people pray, look what happens, verse 15. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. Notice the power of prayer when God's people pray. The Lord raises them and saves them. Now, I don't think this is an argument for the sort of TV faith healer. You ever seen those folks who are like, if you just send me a gift of $24.99, you will have all of your sickness healed and done away with. I don't think this is a command for sort of the name it and claim it folks. If you just claim healing, it'll be yours. Remember in the last chapter, James chapter 4, 13 to 17, he says we're not to speak presumptuously. We're not to speak in our own authority, but in light of God's will. And he would have us and encourage us that we ought to pray if the Lord wills. In fact, Jesus himself in the Lord's prayer says, your kingdom come, your will be done. James isn't guaranteeing that whatever we ask will happen, but he does promise that whatever happens will be God's will. And that we should never feel bad for praying for God's will when it comes to healing. The prayer of faith is a prayer prayed in faith. And it's not a prayer of a certainty of outcome, but it's a prayer in the certainty of God's ability. We're able to pray and ask because God is able and God is good. And he will answer our prayers according to his will. And I would want to remind us, friends, that For the believer, death is a pathway to healing. That we'll often pray for healing for someone, and God's way of answering that prayer is to take them home to him. In fact, God always guarantees healing for the believer. It just does not always happen in this life or in the way we would expect. But the prayer prayed in faith, he says, will raise them up. And James makes clear here, he has more than spiritual sickness in mind. Look at verse 15. Look at the rest of it. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. James begins to make this transition from the power of prayer to heal physical illness to the power of God to forgive sins. All of that is a form of weakness. It all comes under this sort of heading of sickness, whether sickness of the soul or sickness of the body. And he says God's people are meant to be people of prayer, praying for one another and seeing God's power at work in us. James says the church must be a people of prayer. But we also need to do a second piece. He says the church must, second, have a praying posture or come with a posture of prayer, a praying posture. Look at verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man has great power as it is working. Notice, he brings together... Now, he kind of starts to intertwine this idea of spiritual sickness and sin and physical sickness and illness. He says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. 
And I think it's a reminder, friends, that we are both body and soul, and we should care about both. You should pray for physical healing, and you should confess your sins and pray for spiritual healing. Now, here's what James is not saying. James is not saying that personal sin is connected to personal illness, that all personal sickness is connected to personal all personal sin is connected to personal illness. Recall in John chapter 9, when Jesus goes to heal a man born blind, we see this. His disciples asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? In other words, was his sickness directly connected to his sin or the sins of his parents? And Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Friends, James isn't telling us that sickness is always connected to personal sin. That was actually part of the mistake Job's friends made, right? They assumed everything that went wrong with Job was Job must have done something. Because, friends, God doesn't always bring sickness and suffering into our life. His primary goal is to make us more like him, to produce greater joy in us, not to sort of bring uh, retribution or revenge upon us. Yes, sickness came into the world when Adam sinned, but all specific sickness is not due to specific sin. But James would have us consider this, we cannot assume that all sickness is not due to some level of sin. Remember, we're body and soul, and these two worlds are intertwined. Let me give you a few verses to consider. Look at Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4. Here's David, and he talks about his unconfessed sin with the whole Bathsheba incident, right? And he says this, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Notice how unconfessed sin put a weight on David's soul and it impacted everything he did. Friends, a sore conscience can make someone sick. A deadened, sinful heart can impact how you're walking around in your daily life. How you live impacts how you feel. And sin can, in some ways, make you feel sick. The Corinthian church, remember, they were taking the Lord's Supper with unrepentant sin, and Paul says this is why some of them were sick and some of them died. And the posture of prayer, he says, is to come having confessed our sins in humility and praying for one another in faith. In fact, notice he says, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. We should come knowing that we are people right with God, with a clear heart and with confidence in him, praying because God is able Friends, there are likely people here this morning who feel this level of dread and sickness. It's the best word they can describe of sickness in their life because of unconfessed sin and a heavy conscience. And like a doctor might prescribe you medicine for a sick body, let me prescribe you medicine for a sick soul. And it doesn't require, friends, constant visits. When he talks about confessing our sins to one another, he's not necessarily talking about some guy in a curtain and you come in a box and you tell him everything he ever did. 
And there's no reason you got to necessarily tell me because, friends, the answer to sin is something all of us have access to. His name is Jesus. And it begins with confession to our Savior in heaven or being pointed by another to our Savior in heaven. The Apostle John gives us some great medicine for a sick soul. And he says this, 1 John 1. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. He's saying we confess our sins. He says we're all sinners. And when we confess our sins, he says Jesus is faithful to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now you may ask, but why? How? If you're like me, anytime somebody prescribes me medicine, my first question is, what's it do? How's it work? What's it going to do? How does the mechanics work? How does the medicine of confession work? And John continues and says this, 1 John 2, 1 to 2, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Friends, we're able to come and confess our sins and find freedom and healing because Jesus died as a propitiation. That's just a big word for a substitute. He died in our place, a satisfaction for the payment of sin. And he goes one further and says, Jesus didn't just die for you, but he rose and ascended into heaven and he stands today as your advocate. You have a defense attorney in heaven and he's the one who bled and died on your behalf. And we're able to confess our sins to him and Jesus will forgive us of our sins and he will bring what he's already purchased and cleansed and make it a reality in our life. Jesus would invite you today, if you have a heavy heart and a heavy soul burdened down and you just don't know what's wrong, Jesus would invite you to come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And that's what it means to come to God with a posture of prayer, having laid before him our weariness, our heavy ladenness, our sin, and knowing he is able to forgive. In fact, Jesus in many places brought together the reality of sin and sickness. Consider Jesus was sealing Peter's mother-in-law, casting out demons, healing all who came to him. And then we read these words in Matthew chapter 8, verse 17. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Now, if you read much of the Old Testament, you're like, that's Isaiah 53. That is where Jesus, that Isaiah was foretelling that Jesus would bear our sins, but Matthew is using this to teach that Jesus was bearing sickness. What's going on? First, I think it's telling us that Jesus, as a sympathetic Savior, endured sickness for your sake. 
But I think it also is a powerful argument to how Jesus can save even the greatest of sinners. The argument goes like this, and Jesus actually gives it elsewhere. He says, if Jesus can heal your sickness and raise you up, certainly he can forgive your sins. If Jesus is able to make you well, certainly he can, he, if he can heal the body, certainly he can heal the soul. Jesus would apply this logic elsewhere this way. In Luke chapter 5, with an encounter, there's a man on a mat in front of him, and there's a bunch around him who are just denying the power of Jesus. He forgives the man's sins, and they all sort of doubt, how can this man forgive sins? And Jesus responds this way, which is easier, to say to you, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? But you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. In other words, Jesus' point is, if I can bring this man up out of bed, friends, I can certainly take care of your eternity for you. I have the power to forgive sins. He's reminding us, friends, that God is able. And we as a church must come with a posture of prayer. Do we truly believe that God is able to do what we ask? Because, friends, when we believe God is able, it will change what we ask for. We don't just ask for regular old things, but we ask for extraordinary things. And do we come with humility, confessing our sins to God, but also hope that God will receive and forgive us of our sins? When was the last time we asked big things of God and expected big things from God? Church, that is part of what James is inviting us to, to ask big things from God and realize that the future When God is in control, friends, no matter how dark the world gets, the future is bright because God is in control and he is able. And we ask in faith, believing that God is able to do what we ask. In fact, we come with the faith of those who came before us. And that's where James actually closes this passage for us. He says, the church must follow the example of a praying prophet. The example of a prophet of prayer. The church must be a praying people. The church must have a praying posture. And the church must follow the example of a praying prophet. Verse 17. Look at this. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. But then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruits. James holds up to us a guy named Elijah. And if you've never read much about him, you can read about him in First and Second Kings, particularly First Kings 18 to 21 and Second Kings 1 to 3. And he was truly an extraordinary prophet. He raised a widow from the dead. He had done a dramatic showdown with the prophets of Baal. And as James reminds us, he started and stopped the reign in Israel. Remember, Elijah was taken directly into heaven at the end of his ministry, and alongside Moses appeared at the transfiguration of Jesus. And James wants us to see something extraordinary about this extraordinary prophet. He wants you to know that Elijah was very ordinary. He was just 
like us. And he's providing us an example of a man who God did great things through by prayer. In fact, let me show you some of how Elijah is just like us. In the midst of all these incredible miracles, again, he raised the dead, brought down fire on the prophets of Baal. We find him in 1 Kings 19, fleeing the messengers of Jezebel who were trying to kill him. And we find him under a tree, deep in depression, asking the Lord to kill him. You ever been there? Maybe not to that extreme, but in a deep, dark depression of the soul. Everything appears hopeless. You're just like, God, just take me out now. It's important to remember that even faithful servants of God get depressed and want to give up sometimes. But God meets him there under the tree. And this is what happens. 1 Kings 19, 5 to 8. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank. And he went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Herob, the mount of God. Friends, Elijah is just like us. He got grumpy and God said, you needed a snack and a nap. (laughs) And God gave it to him. And he even had Uber Eats before anyone else directly from heaven. God brought him food. And God came in response to prayer. And here's the incredible things, friends. God did extraordinary things through the prayer of an ordinary guy. One, we're told, with a nature, with suffering much like ours. Crossroads, will we ask Elijah-sized prayers of God? Will we make those level of requests to God? Will we be a church where God's people pray, a place where God's power is at work? Or will we be a place that's empty and dead and fleeting of God's presence, his power, and his blessing. I want to call us to respond in a unique way this morning. First, I think it's clear, James is calling us to pray. And you know, you can pray more places than just here on a Sunday morning. Or if you didn't know that, you can anywhere. You don't even have to have me. I've had people that sometimes treat the pastor like I've got God on speed dial or I've got him in my contacts and no one else does. But if you're a Christian, friends, you can talk directly to him. And we're to pray at all times in every way. I truly believe that, friends, our church is great, but there's some sickness in our church. Complacency, indifference. There's sins just like James was dealing with in these congregations. And we need an awakening by the power of God. And I believe he's able to do it. But have we asked together for him to do it? Let me invite you to respond two ways. First, I want to invite you to take out your phone. Yes, I said that in service. If you're able to do this, and I want you to set a reminder this week. At 5.16, you can do that a.m., p.m., you can do it both whenever you're up and around. Set a reminder at 5.16 this week. And here's what I want you to do. For the next week to two weeks, I'd invite you at 5.16 to read James 5.16. So it says, confess your sins to one another, 
pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working to read James 5.16 and to do what it says. Confess your sins and pray, especially for our church. And you're invited, even if, you, if you're able to fast the next several weeks as we do this together, because, friends, our church needs God's people to pray. But even beyond that, we are called to respond together as a faith family this morning. We've structured the rest of our time together to free up space to obey James chapter 5. It would have been so anticlimactic if I preached on this, we sang one song, and then walked out the door. Friends, we need to come and to pray. If you're suffering, you're invited to pray. You can come up front. I'll be up front here praying. You're invited to come to the stairs to those around you. You're even invited to turn around and use your chair to kneel and to pray in. You're invited to come together with others around you and to pray. If you are sick, you're invited to call upon one of the elders of the church or me, whoever's around you here, and invite them to pray with you. And if you're cheerful, maybe all is well, maybe you don't have a particular prayer request, you're invited to praise or to join in praying for others around you. Wherever you find yourself, friends, it is always time to commune with God together, to plug us as his people into the power of God. Let's stand Jeremy's going to come and lead us in some songs to help us praise and pray. And whatever you need to do this morning, however you need to respond, friends, let's seek God's face together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you have invited us to pray to seek your face. And your word says that the prayer of a righteous people are powerful and effective in its working. So we come now as your people, as your church here at Crossroads, and we are asking you to do what only you can do. We're asking you to heal spiritual sickness in our hearts and in our faith family. We're asking you to heal physical sickness among us. And we're asking you ultimately to point us toward you and to awaken us toward your greatness and your glory. Lord, we seek you in prayer together now. And we ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.